Hey, Monica. Hey, Jennifer. So what are we doing today? Today's episode is a bit different than usual, isn't it? Yes, it is. So today we're actually sharing an episode of my other podcast, Serenby Stories, where my co-host Steve Nigrid and I interviewed Colonel Mark Puck Mickleby. We call him Puck. This interview is from December of 2019. So right before the pandemic. Exactly. Literally feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, yes, so, it does. <laughs> no. So we wanted to share this specific episode with our listeners for a few reasons. One, Puck was instrumental in founding the Biophilic Institute, which is where the Biophilic Solutions podcast comes from. And his background, interestingly, is actually in national security. And he argues that biophilia is a hugely important to all of us from a national security perspective. Wow. I think that is such an intriguing idea. I never would have thought of that or putting those two together. Yeah, I think it's really impactful and interesting and sort of contextualizes biophilia in a new and different light than what we've talked about so far. So the other reason I really wanted to share this episode of, of Serenby Stories was with our listeners is because Puck really inspired Steve Nigren, the founder of Serenby, to really create the Biophilic Institute, which you guys will hear more about in this episode. Plus, we've got this amazing Biophilic Leadership Summit coming up in a few weeks, which is usually an in-person gathering of biophilic thought leaders to present topics like land use, planning, infrastructure, regenerative ag, climate, etc. But, of course, like many other things this year, we've gone virtual, <laughs> um, obvious reasons. But if you're listening to this podcast, we have a special discount for you in the show notes. And you'll be very familiar with a lot of the themes and concepts that we do um, at the Leadership Summit, as well as what Puck's going to talk about today. I highly encourage our listeners who this podcast has resonated with to take a look at the link in our show notes and maybe grab a ticket. You'll get to interact with these amazing thinkers and scholars and people who are leading the charge in a way that you just can't do while listening to the podcast. All right, let's get to our interview with Colonel Mickleby. How are you today, Steve? I'm good. Looking forward to our interview discussion today. I know. Today, Steve and I are talking to a very important figure in our lives, um, part of the National Security and Sustainability Conversation. I want to welcome Puck Muckleby to Serenby Stories via phone. This is our first phone interview. Puck, are you there? I'm here. Am I saying your name correctly, your last name correctly, Puck? Uh, it's Mickleby. Mickleby. You, you okay. Call me Puck. Anything you want. Okay. Fabulous. Puck Mickleby. Well, Puck has quite a story that we're going to hear from him today. He's the co-founder of the Long Haul Capital Group, which catalyzes, supports, and propels walkable, sustainable communities. He also talks about that as the future, not only for the United States but the world. Puck is also a graduate of the Naval Academy. He has a master's degree in both military studies and national security studies. And during his time in the Marine Corps, he served as the special strategic assistant to the chairman in the office of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Quite a mouthful, Puck. And when he was there, he developed the national strategic narrative that said sustainability is what's needed to really become the country's national focus if we're going to face the challenges of the 21st century. Um, but Puck, my first question that I ask everybody is, how did you come into our world? How did you first meet Steve and Serenby? Um, by your world, are you talking Serenby or are you talking about sustainability or? That's a great question. I'm specifically what? talking about Serenby. How did you first come to us? I know you were a fellow back in what, Steve, 2000? I think 12, 2012. 12? Okay, great. Um, was that your first introduction to Serenby, or how, how did that whole co thing come together? 
it was it was definitely my first introduction to Serenby, and we can thank uh, the fighting Phyllis Blywise for making that connection. Wonderful. I had met I had met Phyllis. I believe it was at uh, CNU 18 when it was in Atlanta. I believe okay. that's where I first met her. And uh, with with Phyllis over a martini, I'm sure it was, uh, just started chatting. And next thing I know, she had invited me to come to Serenby. Right. Um, and, and CNU was the Congress for the New Urbanism. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. That okay. is correct. And I was just speaking there uh, based on the work that I had done. By this time, I was retired from the Marine Corps, uh, but it was based on the work that I had done at uh, Special Operations Command and then at, uh, for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And Phyllis just thought it would be a good idea for me to come and visit Serenby and uh, talk to the folks there, and that's where I met Steve. And so Phyllis was uh, chairing our fellows program to where we invite uh, interesting people who are writing a book or in places, different places in their career uh, to spend some downtime uh, just hanging out here. Right. And did you do a talk or how, did you meet people while you're here, Puck? What was your interaction with the residents? Yeah, it was uh, all of the above. Um, I gave, I think, just one presentation about the work that I'd done at, uh, for Admiral Mullen when he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff around a document that uh, me and uh, a Navy captain, I was a Marine colonel at the time when I was in the Pentagon, but the Navy captain, Wayne Porter, had written called the National Strategic Narrative that uh, bottom line said that sustainability needs to become our grand strategic national imperative if we're going to face the challenges, not only the challenges of the 21st century, but it, be able to grab onto the opportunities uh, present in the world and, and get back to a place of leading from a position of opportunity and not having such a, uh, what I would say, a masochistically nostalgic focus on threat and risk. Interesting. And Puck, it's always interesting to hear you tell the story on the day you got the call to show up at the Pentagon for this work. Uh, share the the short uh, version of that. Uh, sure. I was actually uh, working on strategy for special operations at Special Operations Command uh, Global Strategy. Uh, this was 2007 to 2009. And we just took a fundamentally different way of approaching strategy rather than a really linear approach. We uh, took a more systems-based approach. And the things that uh, we focused on were Really came out of the from the command uh, the commander of special operations command at the time was a uh, four star navy admiral named Eric Olson and uh, the guidance that he gave uh, my team was to figure out how to get out in front of the sound of the guns. Uh, I just want to say that again because it's really important, not only in terms of an insight, but also for me just personally and professionally. But uh, get out in front of the sound of the guns. In other words, try to figure out how special operations forces could go out and shape the environment so we wouldn't have to go fight. Um, and that was really interesting. And so that uh, led us in a different direction, not only to look at the world more from a systems-based view and not from a control uh, and power kind of view, but more as a participant in an, in, in an ecosystem. And we started looking at things like urban design, regenerative agriculture, uh, female health and education, anything that we thought would be really catalytic uh, at the tactical level that would have large uh, systemic and strategic catalytic impact. Um, 
and Admiral Mullen in 2008, who was a new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he came de- uh, down to Special Operations Command. We gave him a little dog and pony show, a little briefing on what we were doing, and he liked it. And then all of a sudden, this guy named Wayne Porter, Navy captain, who had long time been Admiral Mullen's personal staff, really brilliant guy, uh, he gave me a call and just said, hey, Admiral Mullen told me to contact you, and so I Talked to Wayne a bit. Next thing I know, in July of 2009, I got a call said, "Get you know, get your butt up to the Pentagon because this is uh, coming from Wayne. Uh, you and I are going to figure out a new grand strategy for the country." And so, next thing I know, I was grabbing my sea bag and I was up in the Pentagon, a place I was really good at avoiding. And but there I was, and it was uh, I got to say, it was a it was uh, other than commanding Marines. It was one of the best experiences of my life just because Admiral Mullen is just such a, uh, incredible guy. Um, just incredible guy. So it was a real honor to work for him, especially on a project that big. We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that Monica? The Biophilic Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes, and I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations... We're going to have all sorts of great farm-to-table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings, and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Serenby for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. And so that was that two years, as I remember, that you were at the Pentagon working on this <laughs> and then filed a report? Yeah, it was. It was only supposed to be two months, and it ended up being two years. So there you go. But, um, yeah, I got there in July of '09, and a month later, we had written a national strategic narrative. So in August of '09, I thought my job was done. And uh, but given what we were saying, that uh, it really wasn't in the realm of uh, the military. Quite frankly, it wasn't the job of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, really to dictate and it's not just you know this really great document called the constitution the military doesn't dictate domestic policy it doesn't dictate any policy as a matter of fact but um we were really trying to make a a call that we really had it wrong that this focus on threat and risk and uh really wasn't the direction our country needed to go that we needed to get back to being a land of opportunity and that's we saw sustainability both 
from a national security perspective, but also from an economics, uh, and I would say a prosperity perspective, that's the direction we needed to go. Uh, new systems of food, water, energy, built environment, education, industry, to really uh, take on the big challenges that we face, whether they're climate change, whether they're social dysfunction, issues of equity, um, and quite frankly, uh, fiscal and economic issues, um, we really needed to start moving in a different direction. And But given the fact that it was coming out of the office of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, there were a lot of political sensitivities there. So Admiral Mullen really liked what he saw, what we were talking about, but there was a certain hesitance to to proclaim it, given that that was really the responsibility of our civilian political leadership to come up with those kind of ideas and direct action. So two months turned into two years of trying to get uh, Washington, D.C. to do something different. And then in summary, did you make a recommendation to Congress? Um, We never made a formal recommendation to Congress. In fact, you know, we weren't allowed to go talk to any political folks until just after the new year, 2011. And uh, Admiral Mullen sent us over to see Congresswoman Jane Harmon, who is a blue dog Democrat out of California and a longtime friend of Admiral Mullen. And so he, uh, he, sent us over to talk to her. Uh, We were supposed to have 15 minutes with uh, Congresswoman Harmon, and uh, that turned into about a two-hour conversation. And she loved what she saw. She loved what she read. And uh, she was pretty fired up. Unfortunately, she was retiring from Congress, but when she got over to head the uh, Woodrow Wilson Center in D.C., uh, she took our narrative and uh, she uh, launched it into the public domain from there with Tom Freeman emceeing it and had a gallery of folks uh, debating the merits of the paper that we had written. What am I remembering about uh, the National Defense Act of 1947 that you all said needed to be adjusted, or am I thinking of something else? No, no, you are. I mean, it was, uh, NSA for National Security Act 1947 was basically our, uh, recognizing that the grand strategic challenge facing our nation was the rise of communism, the Soviet Union. Uh, and so we fundamentally restructured, particularly our national security apparatus, to take on that challenge. Uh, So that's where the actual Department of Defense was established, uh, the CIA was established, all the instruments that we used to take on the Soviet Union under George Kennan's concept of containment that he put forth in 1946. Uh, So we had this grand strategic concept of containment, and then uh, we created a national uh, strategic construct uh, under NSA 47 to take on that challenge. And there were subsequent modifications to, uh, to the National Security Act over time. But what we found out after the Soviet Union collapsed, our country never did a reset. We never said, okay, what's the next thing? I mean, you know, history moves forward, our interests uh, move forward, and we just kind of accepted the, that old Cold War construct that was basically leveraged force and power to pursue our interests, to pursue our national interests of what we call prosperity and security. Uh, it no longer fit the world that we face anymore. But you still, we kept, we, keep, uh, we kept doubling down, and I would say we still are doubling down. If you just look at the recent budget, uh, I mean, we're almost up to, uh, you know, we're over three quarters of a trillion dollars. We're all in on just our defense budget. Meanwhile, we're cutting things like uh, the EPA. We're cutting things like uh, even our State Department, our dip, uh, funding to our diplomats and our foreign aid, education. It's, uh, these are, you know, the challenges that we face in the 21st century are lo- no longer just military. 
Uh, there are security challenges. I'm a Marine all day long. And I mean, there are people out there that need to get headbutted into submission, but that can't be our, our go to, uh, position in the world. The world is screaming for leadership to try to figure our way forward so that the human, uh, human beings can thrive as well as our planet can continue to flourish. So that's, that was our perspective. Uh, it still is my perspective. And, uh, this nation needs a big wake up call, particularly what's going on, uh, in Washington DC today. It's only gotten worse. It hasn't gotten better. So my time in, in Washington some 10 years ago. So, Monica, you can imagine when Phyllis said there's this interesting retired Marine that you should have coffee with. I said, sure, Phyllis, whatever you say. <laughs> but after the first coffee, I could hardly wait for more. And so uh, Puck and I uh, had coffee almost every morning during his stay here. And it, when as Puck learned about Serenby is when he said what you're doing here is literally an act of national defense. And as I shared many of the things that we wanted to do, and one of it was to uh, create a campus for university students from really around the world uh, to come for a semester away in environmental planning. Uh, and this would be part of, a, a, of an entire movement to also educate or, or create a think tank uh, for educators and our urban planners in, in the United States. I was calling this at the time the working title was the Green School or, or something like that. But because of Puck's encouragement, we launched the Biophilic Institute. Uh, that really wasn't the name at the moment. We, we worked on the name, but it was Puck's encouragement to do this. And Pug said, if you'll do it, I will be the vice chair. And through these years, Pug has remained the vice chair of the Biophilic Institute as we move forward to actually make some of these things happen. No, that's incredible, Puck. And did you have any idea when you came here that, that would, this would be sort of this long-term relationship that we, you had? No, absolutely not. I mean, I just thought this was, you know, okay, another speaking gig. I mean, I had a, uh, I mean, I mean, who doesn't love Phyllis, you know, so, sure. <laughs> you know, you do it, as Steve said, you do anything just because she, she tells you to do it, you know, but uh, to me, the most, uh, beyond just meeting the great folks that are residents, uh, at Serenity, the fact of the matter is that when you can physically see, touch, taste, uh, uh, what Serenity is about, you know, it's that really visceral connection is something that is special, but the thing, but that it's just not, uh, it doesn't have to be just serenity, mm-hmm. but this is a pattern of design. This is a pattern of living. Uh, it's a pattern of community that there is zero reason why any community can't take those principles and apply them. And that's what really drew me is that the scalability of the design logic, it, it tracked directly to what we were trying to say in uh, the national strategic narrative uh, when I was at the Pentagon. Because the, the fact of the matter is what we're talking about in terms of a macro global impact that the United States could have is that our, you know, and I, maybe this isn't the best, most current language, I really don't care. This is that our smart growth at home can become our smart power abroad because these conditions of community, these conditions of sustainability, these conditions of just uh, civic connection uh, and civic responsibility are, are global in nature. 
you can have your own country. I'm a firm believer in, uh, you know, you need to be proud of your own nation, but we still share the same planet and mm-hmm. we still have the same issues and we still have the same problems, but we still have the same opportunities. And if we don't grab them, we don't design, uh, if we don't grab onto them, we recognize them with a, you know, with a clear eyed, uh, um, you know, vision towards the future and what kind of life and world we want our kids and our grandkids to live in. If we don't act upon it now, uh, all current trend lines show that we are really, uh, we are being future eaters. We are consuming our kids' future and our grandchildren's future just simply because, uh, we won't do the work to shape their world. And that, uh, and I, I hate to, I'm sorry I'm going off on a rant on this, but this is important. The fact that Serenity exists, that you could take these basic design principles and create it and make it real and see the clear manifestation of it just in the way that citizens treat each other and how engaged they are. That's a really powerful, powerful message that um, our country used to have. I mean, Tocqueville wrote about it uh, uh, in democracy in America. Those ideas and those designs are not lost. CERN B manifests that in real form today in 2019, and it's something we ought to be grabbing onto and scaling and propagating, uh, not only across the country, but across the world. No, I mean, obviously we, I mean, thank you for those kind of words. And like, we really obviously really agree with you. And I think we talk about all, all the time, how do we connect people with each other and nature? And I think you've articulated that in a really beautiful way. I know that once that, um, all of the research that you did and then, you know, all the work that you presented to the Admiral and then to Jane Harmon, you were then, once it was declassified, I believe you were able to turn it into the book that I mentioned earlier, the new grand strategy. Can you talk a little bit about that and then, you know, really maybe what you feel like the impact that has had over the past 10-ish years? And I think maybe you were at a think tank for a minute too. Like, can you talk a little bit about that and where you felt like you got some traction and where is there opportunity for all of us to think about continuing to push that message forward? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, well, first of all, our, what we did for Admiral Mullen, uh, as a matter of fact, all the work they did at Special Ops Command, none of it was classified. Oh, okay. None of it was uh, because, uh, I mean, these are common conditions. Okay. That I think was part of the strength of it. It wasn't, you know, a, you know, a secret squirrel kind of thing. It mm-hmm. was just, you know, in my mind, it was, it, it, well, it was common sense. It's, it's basic God-given organic design. You know, mm-hmm. whatever the cool word is now, integrative design or, right. you know, biophilic design, whatever. It's just basic common sense. I mean, how systems are supposed to put together. I mean, hell, Darwin wrote about it at length, you know. Uh, you know, it's amazing that Darwin, it wasn't about survival of the fittest. It was about, if you remember, he wrote about a spring bed and how every organism in that spring bed had a role to play to make that a vibrant biosphere right um and that 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 was the logic that we were using is how can we be the best contributor uh uh to this uh system that we that we belong in right uh that we happen to be in uh and then did the woodrow wilson institute publish that and is that still available online your actual paper yeah it's still uh online if you just google national strategic narrative it'll take you right to the woodrow wilson center uh website and the documents there i mean the, the document itself uh, that we wrote was purposely not prescriptive in nature. I mean, it's not a strategy uh, per se. It it was just trying to, uh, again, catalyze action in D.C. 
And the reason why we weren't prescriptive is because we were very uh, aware and clear-eyed by the fact that we were in the military, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that you know we weren't going to cross the lines of the Constitution and start trying to dictate policy or, or strategy when there, it was so heavily focused on uh, our domestic condition and our domestic requirements. And so uh, this was truly the realm of civilian leadership. Right. Um, uh, I will say, try to get to the answer in the, I think it was the basic question is that, you know, we tried really hard uh, to get the civilian leadership to grab it. Now, the, the principles at the time were obviously of President Obama, Secretary Clinton, Secretary Gates, and uh, Admiral Mullen. All of them uh, had a common worldview, and dare I say it, they, they actually liked each other. They all uh, uh, <laughs> got to hear about the principles that we were pushing. They liked it. And yet we still couldn't get anything done. And that's not a dig on them. That's just the nature of our Washington political environment. I got immensely frustrated. Uh, so I retired. I just said, I'm, you know, this is too big of an idea to let it languish in D.C. and really set uh, sights on, OK, how could the private sector be the catalyst for these principles? Mm-hmm. Uh, how could the, the private sector lead and have, you know, create the parades so that the government could jump in front of it? Uh, you know, and uh, so that's what I did. So I, after I retired, went to New America Foundation for a couple of years okay. and we were picked up by the business school at Case Western Reserve University to develop these ideas. And that's when we wrote the book where we really uh, examined the economics of sustainability. Uh, and, uh, you know, are the economics anything, you know, uh, ironclad? No, nothing is. But the demand uh, and supply, I mean, those, all these basic uh adam smith you know uh uh, principles Mm -hmm. they're all in play for us right now and we have plenty of capital to juice that it's just that right now we've got really uh antiquated policy is what i would say the most significant at least in my mind is that we still are incentivizing drive to qualify suburban sprawl growth it's amazing even though all the data is in the fiscal data is in on how that's unsustainable uh and not to mention environmentally it's unsustainable and social dislocation etc 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 uh so that's why you know even at case western you know going from the military where you're very action oriented then to a think tank which was nice don't get me wrong it was a great opportunity and going to the academic world which was nice don't get me wrong mm-hmm. but none of them are action oriented uh, environments mm-hmm. and I don't really want to be part of a think tank I want to be part of a do tank and that's why me and my uh, business partner for, for a long time since 2010 Patrick Doherty we uh, decided to stand up Long Haul Capital Group as a way to uh, bring capital to not only uh, catalyze but support and propel more walkable sustainable communities because we really see that as the future uh, not only in the United States but around the world Tell me a little bit about because that's I think that's a really interesting point that um, I think well, I'll speak for myself but I think many of us feel like the government is not the answer. And so where can we turn for action and doing? And so tell us a little bit more about long haul capital, like what kind of success or what kind of projects have you been proud of there? Uh, yeah. I mean, we, uh, have 
again, long haul capital, we created that so that we could catalyze uh, walkable communities. And mm-hmm. as we see that, there are three basic components to making that happen. Number one's in the mortgage side of the house is uh, right now, you know, 50% of the investment goes into about 1% of the, the land mass in the United States is considered walkable. That's an enormous, so there's an enormous price premium uh, on that wow. uh, walkability. And so we're cracking the code on the uh, mortgage side of it to open up, the, not only open up the credit box, but uh, all of a sudden uh, also incentivize folks to start buying homes in more walkable places, which, oh, by the way, according to National Association of Realtors, 60% of Americans seek the attributes of walkability in the next housing purchase. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, only 1% to 2% of the landmass is walkable. That's kind of weird. So there's a big disconnect between uh, supply and demand. The second thing is how do you create more walkable communities? Well, we look at that uh, uh, not only from a need to reduce our carbon emissions and reduce the number of cars on the road and you know burning fossil fuels, uh, but also because they will catalyze those communities. So we uh, also invest in rails, particularly streetcar and light rail systems. And where there's a transit stop, you know, you, the quarter mile radius around that is an opportunity to create more walkable, mm-hmm. dense communities. And then the third thing is once those things are being created, you have to be able to support them with the types of in- infrastructure that makes sense, mostly district level infrastructure, whether you're talking about uh, energy, water, uh, uh, connectivity systems, both in last mile mobility, but also digital connectivity systems. So mm-hmm. Uh, investing in those things that allow those walkable communities to thrive in a 21st century context. And so that, uh, those three basic components are, uh, are what we built our, our business model around. And so we're working on several different projects. We can get in, uh, we can or not get into those, but I mean, we're, we're cutting our teeth in, uh, place out in Portland with, uh, uh, OMSI, the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking to try to get a streetcar system up and running in, in Cleveland. And then on the, uh, so the district infrastructure thing is on OMSI. And then we are, uh, what we're really mostly focused on right now is cracking the code in revitalizing the mortgage industry, particularly using a fintech solution that is focused on walkability. Um, and uh, so that's what we're doing right now. And really pre- provide transparency, consistency, most importantly, directing the huge volume of money that goes into the mortgage industry to really have a strategic impact on uh, the way we live our lives in the United States and leveraging the mortgage industry to do that. That's interesting, but but all with the vision of the urban walkable environment, which makes so much sense. Yeah. I had no idea those statistics are kind of wild. The supply and demand is so off. Uh, yeah, and uh, so we're really keeping an old system on life support with really bad fiscal and monetary policy. Right. It's crazy. Yeah, it really is. But the cool thing is that a place like Serenby cracks the code, not in a theoretical sense, but in a real physical sense. And I'd also throw in one of the things, and Steve is probably going to tell me to shut up about it. I think one of the most fascinating things about Serenby is soil reclamation. As boring as that is, I mean, that is, uh, well, some people it's boring. To me, it gets me all lathered up. I mean, it's just talk about something. If you could take that science of soil reclamation, you start applying that to some of the more distressed urban envi- urban environments across country. You know, yeah, I'm thinking about Cleveland. I'm thinking about places like Detroit. Just think about what a game changer that would be mm-hmm. in terms of wellness, in terms of solving food uh, desert issues, or just having kids grow up with a fair shot without having to deal with lead in the soil, et cetera. And just as a, uh, a little factoid, you know, we a lot of focus on Flint and the water uh, lead content in the water in Flint, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you 
uh, and it's not a direct analogy, but I mean, just, you know, you know, work with me here. But if, you know, you could do an equivalent comparison, water, you know, and then the soil of Cleveland, the soil of uh, Cleveland has three times more lead in it on a comparative basis. Hmm. Just the soil and the urban environment, Cleveland. Now, just imagine what that's doing to kids. Just yeah. imagine what that's doing to to uh, to wellness, not just public health, but well, long-term wellness of the various commu- underserved communities here. I mean, that's a pretty simple thing that you could do is just start treating the soil. And guess right. what? Urban kids getting connected to Mother Earth through dirt is probably a really cool thing to do. Well, Pop, my opinion. I have been listening, and uh, Rodale Institute has uh, announced now that they're going to put their Southeastern Research Center here. And as you know, they've been the leaders in uh, soil and organic foods. So we're continuing to uh, to listen to you and, and uh, put into practice demonstration areas. And that's what I love about Serenby. It's not about, yeah, let's talk about it, let's see what, what could possibly happen. It's just like, okay, that's a good idea. Let's go do that. That's what makes Serenby special. And, and then connecting that, uh, I just uh, got back from a weekend with Children and Nature Network uh, and with a, a, another friend of yours, David Orr. Great American. Yeah. Have, have you seen the galleys for the new book he's doing? No, I have not. Um, no, I have not. A whole other conversation we'll have. Yeah, well, that one's and that's coming out in February. So all focused on um, democracy, um, and I think one of the quotes from it is like, you know, we we basically can't save the planet if we don't save democracy. Yeah, that's a little bit on the front of my brain right now. Everything that's going on. So, but as you know, that's what's amazing about David Orr. I, mean, I don't think the guy the guy has a better shot at not breathing than he is to not write a book. I mean, it's just amazing how many books that guy can crank out. Mm-hmm. And it's all great stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you see anybody, Puck? Or and and I know you know you already said you know we're sort of all looking for somebody to shine a light um, and really speak the truth. Right. And I know we're, we're having this really great conversation and Serenby is a, a great example. And I think your book is a, is a really great, um, place to start thinking about and be more thoughtful, but do you see leaders or places or nonprofits or that are doing the good work or that we should be looking into or following or supporting? Yeah. Mayors. Mayors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause mayors can't, BS their way around problems the way they could in a state capital house or a national capital. You know, mayors actually have to walk the street and look people in the eye and, you know, make hard decisions uh, on priorities and resources. Uh, but they also see the real ramifications of things that, uh, you know, other policy makers can ignore. You know, specifically like climate change and stuff. You know, uh, you know, look at Pittsburgh. I mean, I mean, that Pittsburgh is a great example of what can happen. Uh, but just across the board, mayors get it. County council members, for the most part, get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what? Ideology is a really convenient thing when you don't have to actually do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, you know, pragmatic policy that has real impact on people's lives day to day uh, and have that level of accountability, which equates to walking down Main Street and having someone stop you. Right. And, and you know, uh, and they're, they're at your actual neighbor. I mean, again, I don't, you know, pointing back to what the Tocqueville talked about, you know, the Americans traditionally have not waited around for someone to tell them what to do. They just see a problem set or they see an opportunity and they just get unfigured out. And I think at the, at the city, town, 
level with uh, mayors, that's where we see real action. You that's know, great. and I mean, I do believe, like uh, in the you know, in, on the private sector, there are great entrepreneurs out there that are trying to do the right thing, investors that are trying to do the right thing. We just have to uh, figure out how to scale it, and I think the scaling factor would start with uh, maybe at the state level, which you see happening in various states. But at the end of the day, uh, once you start getting to the level of states and at the national level, it's going to have as Eisenhower said, it's going to require a knowledgeable and informed citizenry mm-hmm. to make sure that our instruments of government are acting uh, in a manner not only commensurate with our values, but are also delivering on our enduring interest of prosperity and security. And that, to me, uh, I know I focus on mayors, but I just didn't. I have immense hope in our uh, citizenry that there'll be a wake-up call and that just won't be about the economy, stupid, because right now we're just on our uh, heroin high in terms of the economy. Well, yeah. we've got a big, huge train coming our way. I know. Uh, and it's not going to feel good when it hits. But hoping that our citizenry will wake up, uh, have a moral awakening, but also, uh, you know, have a functional awakening about what it's going to take. And yeah, it may take some sacrifice. Get over it, America. You know, uh, suck it up. Yeah. We've got got some work to do. Yeah, no, I I agree. I know that answered the question, but man, that felt good to say. Thank you. (laughs) It's like a therapy session. Oh, good, good. I like it. That's what we're here for. Um, No, I think think that's a great answer. And I mean, we talk a lot about you know, what can you do? And I think there's a lot of fear or apathy or there's like confusion. So I just want to put my head in the sand, but it is really like each of us has the power to make change. And like, even just back to economics, the pocketbook, right? We can make change by how we purchase things, how we eat, where we choose to live. We do have a lot of influence. And so really being considerate about being informed and making thoughtful decisions, I think is a huge part of it. Um, Steve, do you have anything else to add about your relationship with Puck? Or Puck, do you have anything else interesting you want to tell us that you're working on outside of long haul? You doing another book by chance? Oh, me writing another book? Probably never. That was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I won't use my, I won't tell you my analogy because it's kind of not the, the you know, it was just uh, for me, I'm a, I like to draw cartoons. Okay. You know, I'm not, but yeah, it's always difficult for me to write, but, okay. uh, but I just keep, you know, keep thinking and the, um, it's important to constantly, you know, be parentally curious. And you know, I, I, one of my biggest reasons for hang ups with writing a book is that it just seems so dang final, you know, mm. and when you haven't figured everything out yet. So it's hard to write something down when you know that uh, it isn't really quite right yet. So that was a long way to say, no, I can write a book. <laughs> well, Puckett, I know your son is now how old? Uh, he's 19 and he's a sophomore at NYU Tisch at film school. Oh, wow. So proud of him there. Yeah. And so it it appears that the, the the youth, uh, being a little disgusted with our elder generation are, are are stepping forward in a way that I cannot remember youth doing. I mean, I I remember the sixties and it was more individual rights, whether, uh, you know, sexual freedom and, uh, various things, but this is uh, a group really looking at the global issues. I guess they've, they've grown up with it. And, uh, what are your thoughts on, on that movement and the voices coming forward? Yeah, that's one of them to keep going. They're reminding us what democracy is about. You know, uh, after Parkland, what kids did, you know, in, in rising uh, up and to have their voices heard, uh, it was just inspiring to me. Now, some people said, you know, how, how dare they, they, those kids lecture 
us adults. Well, I said, well, you know what? Number one, they're absolutely right. Number two, we need to be lectured. Yep. You yep. know, uh, we absolutely need to be lectured. And what better voice? I mean, it's their future. Right. You know, and I'm glad that they're voicing their concerns about their future. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the best part about you know coming out of such a horrible event like Parkland was the political awareness of those kids to say, listen, we may not be able to vote now, but we are going to vote. Mm -hmm. That was a great message that just cut right to the heart of the issue. And I loved it. I loved it. Brought tears to my eyes. Mm -hmm. They're like, get ready. Mm-hmm. Well, and then yeah. we're recording this in December of 2018. And so we're going to date it. But, you know, Greta is on the cover is the time person of the year. Right. So that's an incredible statement. Um, I, I was thrilled to see that. I think it was this morning. Yes. Um, and that makes me very hopeful that that topic will not go away. So. And hopefully we see numbers in this next election to show that this generation is coming out to vote because we've had a lot of uh, apathy in the uh, youth once they get the right to vote. And uh, hopefully that's going to change to to indicate that it is going to be a time of change. Yeah, absolutely. And and if I could just throw one more thing, it's just, you know, we're all you know, trapped from where we came. But I, I also have a, uh, it's not about being in the military that there's any great, you know, you don't have, uh, I mean, you do get great insight, but it's not about that the military has the answer to everything. But I'm also very heartened by the fact that we've got a lot of young Americans, men and women that served in, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of them in combat are now getting their political voice and are joining, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, at any level of government because that perspective of uh, uh, those that are in the military, it's about, first of all, it's about teamwork. It's about higher purpose, not about self. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and it's about service. And so it, it, I'm also heartened by the fact that we, we've got a generation that really know what it means to serve and what it really means to uh, you know, put everything on the line to serve uh, in all levels of government. Um, so with these kids that are aware, with a generation that's been uh, tested through a time of war uh, and with that perspective, I do think uh, the, the, you know, we're going to be able to turn the corner. I'm hoping we can do it in time uh, to have real effect on uh, on these big macro global systems, but it is something that we should all take heart in and, and be hopeful for. Yeah. Puck, it's always inspirational talking with you and it, it always makes me want to do more and do it faster. So yeah. thanks for all the work you're doing and chatting with us today. Yeah. Thank you so much, Puck. Thanks for your time. Uh, thank you. And thank you for Sarah and B and the Biophilic Institute. I mean, it's just, that's inspiring. It's real, but it's inspiring. So thank you. It was great talking to you guys. All right. Thanks, Thanks, Puck. Take care. Okay. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Wow. Okay. That was really super fascinating. I love the line he used that was like, smart growth at home becomes smart power abroad. Like he really just distilled the whole idea down into that one short sentence. For me, that was kind of groundbreaking. So much of politics, it was true in 2019, December, and is true now, feels so knee-jerk. We have to get to a place where we're thinking about the long-term solutions that are going to create a healthy, thriving society that in turn makes us more respected and influential on the world stage. Yeah, and it occurred to me as I was re-listening to this episode, very interesting to get this perspective from someone in the military as well. 
You know, we don't often have that insight on an issue like climate or sustainability where someone is really making the argument that this is our national security interest. You know, national security is so much deeper than having a stockpile of weapons. Yes. If we're healthy and living in harmony with the natural world and natural systems, then it stands to reason that we are more secure people. Yeah. And it's also interesting to hear from him. You know, he pivoted from this military background to working in the private sector where he feels like he can be much more action oriented and make more tangible change. And I really liked his idea of shifting the mortgage industry of all things. Right. That was really intriguing. Yeah, it's amazing. As we dive into this topic of biophilia, it just touches so many areas that I didn't even really think about. I mean, our last episode was about clean beauty and how we become conscious consumers. And now we're talking about national security with a former Marine and the finance world. It's mind blowing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, You know, I think there's endless applications, honestly, and more ways we can apply this idea of bringing things across diverse industries back into nature and the more we can really pave the way and actually make change. Absolutely. And I could not agree more. All right, guys. So head to the show notes and grab your tickets to the Biophilic Leadership Summit. We do have a special discount for listeners and we'll see you back here in a couple weeks. Bye.